Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Chad, and this is uh, episode three of Taking Stock. Um, This week's episode, we're going to talk about DRS, because why not? Um, It is taking stock, after all, and uh, we are taking the stock from the DTC and putting it in our pockets, the retail investor of everyone. Um, we got a sweet guest today, Peruvian Bull, um, and a bunch of the DRS gang and Sears. Um, so we, <laughs> uh, apparently, um, so yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna get kind of right into it. Uh, it's 401 as people trickle in here, um, I guess uh, what we want to do is we 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 want to talk about uh, some project updates um, with the with the DRS team, um, and and then we'll have a conversation um, uh, about uh, DRS and maybe get into some macro, um, and then we'll uh, we'll open it up for uh, some Q and A um, if yeah if uh, people want to come up and ask questions. Um, yeah, we're all here. I, I see a lot of familiar faces. It's good to see uh, a lot of new faces. Also good to see education is key. And since we are um, just little retail investors, um, yeah, we need to we need to keep educating each other because uh, we don't have all the information that um, uh, that everyone else has. Uh, that being said, I'm going to throw it over to, I think, Chives. Chives, are you going to be uh, the one starting it off here? Sure can. Thanks a lot there. So as far as project updates this week, I'm very proud to uh, let everyone know we've just added a new page to ydrs.org, which details extensively the shareholder proposal process. Long story short, just to give you a preview, you know, one of your rights as an investor uh, once you meet a certain investment threshold is submitting proposals to the company so that they can respond to the proposal and then potentially include it on that year's proxy material. So the guide goes into a lot of detail about how you qualify, what you do in order to submit your proposal, how it needs to be formatted, and what the company can do from there as far as the different types of responses they can have and what sort of action you take after that. So really proud of this guide. Uh, I think we'll have it in the, uh, in the nest for anyone curious to go and check out. Thanks, Chad. Vivek, did you have any quick updates? Yeah, I can jump in with a couple of updates. Um, I just want to give actually another shout out. We mentioned it last week, um, but I wanted to bring up again, there's a, there's a page on ydrs.org. That's all about give a share, which is how people outside of America, like myself, were able to get some of their first directly registered shares. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out because it's just a great resource for onboarding people who haven't, you know, had the experience of seeing their first directly registered share. Cause I mean, I remember, for me personally, seeing that moment, being like, oh, I actually own this. Like, it, it really, it feels different. It, it hits home, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, beyond that, we're going to be working on the YDRS database a lot soon. 
I'm going to be filling out a lot of contact information for all the brokers that I've been doing guides for. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're also always searching for help. If anyone wants to do a little bit of data entry, it's all doable through forms, Google forms that you can get on uh, through the website, ydrs.org. Um, like you could just do one company and that's it, but it adds towards this massive mountain of information that we're trying to build. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it for me this week. Thanks, Bibic. Um, just a quick reminder of what we saw in Grapevine when reviewing the stockholder list. As of April 21st, 2023, more than 33% of all computer share accounts were enrolled in the direct stock plan, which means over 22 million shares are at risk of being held at DTC. We, we know plan shares are not DRS. If you have a bunch of DRS shares or what some people call book holdings and you also have planned shares, any amount, even a fraction of a planned share, then all of your shares are enrolled in the direct stock plan and all of your shares are at risk of being held at DTC. If you have DRIP enabled, you're enrolled in the direct stock plan. If you have any sell limits set, you're in the direct stock plan. In case you're interested in terminating the direct stock plan, there's going to be a link in the nest that takes you to the DRS GME website with step-by-step instructions. Uh, I'm also posting the stockholder list statistics and the recent SEC and FINRA bulletins that confirm that plan shares are not DRS. And I believe Miller is going to introduce our, our guest speaker for today, unless Mojo had something to say. That's it. Let, uh, let Miller do the talking. Great. Hey, thank you, guys. Yeah, it's my pleasure to um, to speak just for a moment before Peruvian Bull comes up. Uh, like most of you, I got to know who Peruvian Bull was from his popular posts on Reddit, and he got to know me from my DRS passion and Purple Circles on Reddit. Um, he and I then got to know each other better through messaging on Twitter. Uh, we also became somewhat friends due to some in-real-life personal things that we both have in common. Um, over the course of time, we mutually shared um, a lot of personal information with each other, um, mutually doxed ourselves to each other, and um, he shared with me um, his willingness um, to provide his DRS information uh, so that when um, the guys that went to Texas to view the shareholder listing, um, they could verify um, along with others, um, that he was in fact on, on the shareholder listing and was DRS. Um, the two of us spoke on a call for the first time, a voice call last week, um, about the false rumors, uh, that had recently come up by some bad actors apparently. And, um, we were able to, to come to, um, the truth of the matter. And I'm quite stoked uh, to have him join us on the spaces call here today. Um, if any of you didn't already, please consider buying his book. It's the same dollar end game book, um, that he had posted a series about on Reddit. Um, me personally, maybe it's because I'm, uh, I'm older. I, I very much love to have, uh, the paperback hard copy in my hand. Um, it's, um, the dollar end game hyperinflation is coming. It's available on Amazon for, Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I believe I paid thirty dollars for it. Um, well worth, um, well worth the money. And 
uh, very happy to support um, such a backbone DD contributor um, in real life. So, um, so welcome Peruvian Bull. If you want to feel free to share anything you'd like with us and maybe also at some point, let us know how you got started uh, with GME and DRS. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Miller. Um, everyone can hear me? Loud and clear, man. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, yeah, this <laughs> this last couple of weeks has been pretty crazy. Um, you know, doxing threat and, you know, several, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, drama happening in the back end for sure um, that I was not aware of and I guess I just kind of sleepwalked into. Um, and... I, yeah, I did not realize how vociferous, you know, the sides are and how ready people are to just go from zero to a hundred and try to dox people, which is insane. But I'm glad, I, I think basically the threat has passed. The person who is threatening to dox me, I'm pretty sure is, uh, bluffing because I have a friend who kind of reached out and, and pretended like he was on their side and, found out more information and it looks like the person that he thinks I am is not actually me. Um, and you know, of course at some point I'll, I will reveal who I am, but I'm just not ready yet. I want to stay anonymous. I like to, um, keep a low profile. So I appreciate, uh, your discretion. Proving um, bull has a better yeah. ring than John yeah, Smith. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know? it, it, it has a way better. My name actually is not good at all. So like if you heard it, you'd be like, dude, go take that, change that yeah, shit back to Peruvian Bull. Yeah. Stick sure. with PB for sure. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, you can, I, I have a book, but I mean, I also have the entire series for free on my website and on medium and on Reddit and on a Google doc. So if you just want to read it, um, you know, I didn't make it to make money. If you just want to check it out, you can, um, and I'm I'm grateful because just this last week I ended my job um, and I'm, now I'm going to start doing this full time. And um, the company I work for supports transfer agents kind of indirectly. Um, we're not a, a a transfer agent in the traditional sense, so I don't know why people think I work at Computer Share, but I don't. Um, but we do have support for them. And ironically, the CEO for my for the company I used to work for is trying to build basically a transfer agent like exchange. So a way for transfer agents to trade shares with each other um, directly without having to actually go to a listed market and have everything, you know, all the certificates held in the transfer agent um, accounts or in your own accounts versus having them held at the DTCC. And I don't know if he understands the full extent of, the corruption at the DTCC. And I don't know if he understands how prevalent naked shorting is. I think he just wants to do this as a business um, idea. And maybe he does more know that than he's letting on, um, but that's not what he stated publicly. But um, it, it's been a great company to work for, and I'm grateful to have had the last couple of years there. Um, but it's definitely time to move on. Um, but yeah, I'm passionate to come on today, talk about DRS, talk about the importance of actually owning your shares in your own name and not having them held in a margined account. Um, yeah, I, I'm ready to jump into whatever subject you guys want to talk about. Excellent. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the messages you were, uh, we were going back and forth, you, you suggested maybe telling you guys a little bit how we got started on the DRS GME stuff and maybe Miller chives Bibbit could kind of 
summarize that? Also, I, you know, it might be a good idea. Could you guys, I mean, there's a lot of people in the audience who probably don't know what DRS is or even why we should DRS. Do you guys want to explain what it is and, and why, you know, individual stockholders should do it? That's a great idea. Chives, do you want to take the lead? Well, sure. Yeah, it's funny. I'm so deep in this so often. I don't often think about that there may be people listening who aren't familiar. So DRS, the acronym stands for Direct Registration System, which is a service of the Depository Trust Company, which, long story short, allows folks to move stocks from their brokers or uh, banks or other places where you can typically hold shares and then move them into your own name. The key thing to realize there is that most investors who own stocks in the market don't own shares in their own name. They own an entitlement to the profit and loss and voting rights of a share that is held through this other massive entity. And by using the DRS system, you can take full control over the share. That comes with a bunch of benefits, such as knowing that your shares won't be lent uh, without your knowledge or consent against the value of your investment, such as knowing that you will be able to cast votes and have those votes be counted, and such as being able to submit shareholder proposals and have a direct line of communication with your company without needing to go through other uh, entities in the chain of custody, such as your broker or the DTC. And for, you know... I think the main reason we wanted to DRS shares when we first started learning about it is we knew that these shares were going to be withdrawn from the DTC and no longer possible for hedge funds to borrow the shares and use them as shorts. And that was a, a simple enough understanding for most people to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's take our shares off the market and put them with the transfer agent. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say that's one of the major things that definitely got me started. I little history about me. I got my feet wet and my passion for self-custody a decade ago with crypto when I first learned about Bitcoin way back. And, you know, well, I guess one foot in front of the other. And as soon as I understood the how to apply that same uh, moral value to the stock market, realized that there was so much abuse going on when you don't actually have ownership. Uh, I wanted to jump in. And fortunately, uh, Miller reached out to me and we were able to, uh, to get started on some of these resources. Well, I, and I think, you know, we should stress that point, like what you said earlier, it's insane that the shares that you hold in a brokerage account aren't actually titled to you legally. You're just a beneficial owner. Like that blew my when I when I read that, that absolutely blew my mind, right? Because the typical, you know, financial dogmas when you buy shares, um, they are yours and you can elect to do with them as you please. And if you want to put them in a margin account, allow and turn on share borrowing, you can. And if you want to turn it off, you can. And anything that happens, you know, these are your property, right? They're your assets that you purchased. But legally, if you purchase shares and hold them in a brokerage account, then, you know, and they're held to the DTCC, you're just a beneficial owner. You're not the, the, the titled, you know, registered owner, which is what DRS does. It changes the ownership from, 
you know, the DTCC and the beneficial owner, as in you're just getting the benefits of the stock, but the actual legal titles held in your broker's name um, versus the DRS system, which is moving these shares to a transfer agent who directly holds the certificates for you and you are the actual owner. Is that a, is that a good like approximation of, of what it is? I think you hit the nail on the head. And one quick amendment or addition I'd say right at the end there is that transferring to the transfer agent uh, is not going to be the same as holding through a broker. A transfer agent is a different type of financial entity that is contracted by issuing companies. And so, for example, in GameStop's case, they contract with ComputerShare to maintain their share ledger. And so ComputerShare is performing that task for them, but the ownership of the actual underlying shares is, uh, you know, the listed investors uh, there on the ledger. And the important thing to remember there is computer shares client is GameStop. They're not uh, as heavily and actively looking to monetize, uh, you know, the people who are owning the shares or the underlying asset in the same way that a free at point of service broker is actively looking to do. One thing I wanted to follow up on that uh, is to kind of double back on voting rights um, because it's something that's kind of glossed over a lot. Uh, not not everyone cares about voting rights when they buy shares, uh, and that's fine. Um, but if you're voting through a broker, there's absolutely no guarantee that your votes are going to reach the company. That's part of why it's an entitlement and not actual legal ownership. Uh, you're just entitled to it. You're not guaranteed for it. Um, so like in 2021, before a lot of us directly registered, registered our shares, there was a 95% turnout for the GameStop uh, annual meeting. Um, and that was when like, I had uh, five different brokers in the UK. None of them allowed voting. Uh, the year after that, eToro allowed voting, um, and the, it, it was such a janky, messy, very, very thinly built uh, little landing page to to do your vote through. It felt like it was literally just going through a processor, and then they're just putting it in the bin afterwards. Uh, there's like so many layers, especially outside of the US. Every non-US broker has to then, if they want to own U.S. shares or buy or trade or hold U.S. shares, they need a U.S. broker. So <laughs> we've got that extra layer of removal even more so. Um, so you're the beneficial owner of an entitlement with your broker. The broker is also a beneficial owner of the share, which is actually held by uh, the DTCC under its nominee name, Seed & Co, or CD. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's this kind of almost it looks a lot like a pyramid uh, or, you know, a triangular shaped structure where there are many of us at the bottom and then you've got the market makers and everyone trying to make money off of you doing your trades. And then you've got a handful of brokers and then they report to the single entity at the top, which is CD and company. Uh, it's, it's just a, yeah, it's not a beneficial system for the investors. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and it almost seems like there there really is no beneficial system for for us. And and you know, obviously before before they took the buy button away, um, you know, it seems like there, there, none of us were were privy to um, 
how a lot of the the inner workings of the market um, actually work and and you know when when they when they shut the buy button off you know there were fractions out there fractional shares there was there was some people that just took you know just completely shut it off there was some people that that could still trade or whatever um, well, they were only they were, then after yeah there were fr- there were fractional shares shares trading at like Two yeah, or three thousand dollars. I mean, yeah. I I remember seeing that on January twenty eighth. It was like most people could not stop got stopped out at selling at you know four hundred fifty or whatever the the stock price was. But it was like for a brief millisecond the the price shot up into the thousands. And it's really interesting to me why did fractional shares execute trades but not full shares? Yeah, I, I, and I wonder because there was a there was a couple times and and I wasn't too. I wasn't really too, you know, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with my brokerage as, as much. And I think, I think it was basically, I had X amount of, of dollars and I put like a, like a market buy or whatever. And if I had put a market buy for, you know, you know, 2000 bucks and somebody was selling, you know, fractional, I don't, my brokerage specifically doesn't do that. But if somebody's whose brokerage did and they put a market buy or whatever, and if that triggered, then then all of a sudden they're they're only getting, you know, point three of a share, and it costs them twenty eight hundred bucks. I have a feeling that that might have been the situation, but you know who knows? There, you know, it could it could be anything. But six but yeah. days. Did you have something? You have your hand up. Yeah, I did. I I just had one thing that I wanted to add about um, shares held in a broker is um, if the company gives a cash dividend and your shares are lent with or without your knowledge, uh, it actually affects your tax rate because uh, you get a cash in lieu instead of a dividend and it's taxed as ordinary income instead of a dividend. So that's one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't know, you know, that kind of goes along with not being guaranteed to vote is that it can actually affect your, your taxes if your shares are lent. Yeah, it's the difference between the uh, qualified dividends and non-qualified dividends. I think in Dr. T's book, she refers to those folks as non-shareholders, folks who get the statement at the end of the year and it says, nope, your dividends are non-qualified. You have to pay a higher tax rate because unbeknownst to them, they were lent out. Um, we did forget to mention at the beginning of the, the hour, uh, we are going to open it up to public Q&A. Uh, we're going to follow the agenda. Uh, if you look on the tweet, you'll you'll see the agenda. Um, so probably about another ten or fifteen minutes for the folks and looking to raise their hand right now. So uh, PB, I was just sort of wondering a bit more about your own history, kind of learning about DRS, um, you know, that your personal journey as far as that goes. And how does that kind of work into the broader macro DD that you do about the the broader markets? Are there parallels in interest or uh, key moments that you can draw between them? Yeah, well, so like many of you, you know, I um... – I was, you know, sitting at my computer in January 2021, working remote, um, and just watching, you know, the absolute craziness unfold in the stock markets with, you know, the multiple short squeezes in GameStop, in Cost, Nokia, um, AMC, and 
you know, it was my it was my feeling that, you know, we had hit a vein because there was not only a massive amount of or at least support, like purported short covering in the media um, and news articles and, and attention. But there's also a huge amount of, you know, what felt like kind of delayed anger on the part of a lot of people who had suffered from the 2008 financial crisis. People were coming out and saying, look, you know, I got screwed over. These larger financial institutions got bailed out. They got loans. You know, the TARP programs and TAMF were able to swallow up massive amounts of of assets and and keep them off their balance sheets. And they were bailed out, but the average everyday person who got foreclosed on was not. And so that that anger was palpable. And, and leading up to that week, I was you know pretty excitable, and I was having a great time just <laughs> browsing Reddit and and looking at the gamma squeeze and and trying to figure out when I should when I should buy in. Um, and like most of you, when, when they turned off the buy button, um, I was like completely shocked and, and dismayed. It was like a, a surreal moment. Um, I actually missed like the entire day of work that day. And my boss was calling me cause I was supposed to be in meetings. And um, I just did not pick up the phone because I was like, I could not believe that they had actually turned off, you know, buying for security um, just based on a purported short squeeze. And so at the time, I thought that this was just some sort of, you know, safety net of, of um, you know, brokers or, or clearinghouses trying to stop, you know, losses in short covering. Um, and as, as many of you would share, like this same experience, as time went on, I realized that what had happened was actually much more severe, right? Like the stock was shorted so much that the positions were basically impossible to close. And so they closed, they turned off the buy button, not just to stop losses for just a few hedge funds. It was to save major, major losses from some prime brokers who were also on the hook. And so, you know, as time went on, I, I began to get more and more curious because I'd done all this research, right? For the last six, seven years, I've been diving into macro, monetary economics, specifically like the global monetary system and how it works. And so I understood th- these things were broken from a macro point of view, but I always had this faith in the stock market and in you know our own like financial system. Um, and in 2018, I actually was on the floor of the stock exchange with my university um, on like a trip, and I was able to meet you know stockbrokers and talk to them and just see how it worked. Um, and at the time, I was in you know the same position that most people are today, which is to to believe that this is all legitimate and and the shares you trade are real and there's no such thing as naked shorting. And after, you know, January, 2021, and then especially after March, I started doing more and more research. I read Dr. T's book. I started talking to, you know, especially if I gained some prominence on Reddit, I started talking to Adabit and others. And it just completely blew my mind that the very shares you hold in your account are not legally entitled to you. They're entitled to somebody else. And like what you covered earlier, other people can step in as middlemen and stop you from getting your proxy votes um, to the board, right? Or from getting your um, – from, from actually you know, trying to register your stock in your own name. I remember seeing a lot of accounts complaining that they were getting error notices when they were trying to transfer – do ACAT transfers out of their brokerages, um, especially out of Robinhood, right? And that was a new level of corruption that I just could not believe. And it, it honestly took me months to to fully, I guess, uh, you know, absorb. Um, and, you know, 
there's that there's that saying i don't know if you remember this i think it's from the the big short um you know you you guys paint yourself as cynical people but you still have some faith in the system like that that was kind of the moment for me right like i still had faith i was like well there's all these problems with the fed there's all these problems with you know the primary dealers and people playing shorts in the treasury market and I'd, i've been researching what's been happening in the gold markets for years and I understood. I was like, okay, well, look, like, yes, the gold markets. I was, I was previously a huge gold bug, and so I was research. I was at a at a position researching like gold stocks and equities in and miners and and um, um and uh, and producers in the gold industry, and and so I was really into that world. And I was like, so mad for so long. Why didn't gold rally? Why was what was going on? Why did it keep trading sideways? And what I realized over time was that the market was completely manipulated, right? Like there were definitive signs similar to how Harry Markopoulos pointed out the issues with um, the mathematical issues with Bernie Madoff's scheme. There were mathematical abnormalities with the gold price where it would get slammed down at market close and pumped up at market open like clockwork, you know, almost every day. And so there's some big players there obviously manipulating the markets, but I didn't believe that this, could possibly be endemic to the entire stock market. I, I thought it was just isolated events and that the SEC and other regulators were the hard-nosed cops on the beat who were trying to come in and stop you know, any malfeasance on the part of market makers or hedge funds um, instead of just being selective actors who decide arbitrarily who when to enforce and when to not enforce. And this whole saga has broken that illusion for me and i think for many people as well right like we've realized that the stock market is it's it's a beast of its own you know desire it's something it's become something that no one really fully understands or fully grasps just because the size of it and the complexity and all these secret hidden you know backroom um style deals that keep going on that keep the system in this weird limbo of of fake shares and fake liquidity constantly. Um, and so as I, you know, as I delve deeper and deeper into the GameStop phenomenon and, and understanding, you know, how our stock market works, you know, my disenchantment started growing to the point that, that, that I finally decided to start writing um, and publishing some research and putting out my own thoughts. And my, my, you know, a lot of people have criticized what I put out and that's fine. I believe my stuff is, you know, tangential to to uh, to the GameStop phenomenon. I don't think it's. I obviously don't think it's directly related. I have written some pieces on GameStop before, but they were pretty minor in comparison to what I've written on macro. Just because my knowledge was much more focused on macro than it was on, you know, GameStop, and there were other people doing much better technical analysis and fundamental analysis than I was. Um, but this whole scenario was was really eye-opening to me and you know shocking i think for most people in finance it's hard to come to terms um and i think lawson you probably would agree with this like it's hard to come in terms that most of what you're taught is a lie you know or just omitting so much truth that it is almost not even true right so it, yeah yeah it's been it's been this it's it's been depressing you know to say the least 15 years of teaching undergrad and grad finance teaching valuations to come to realize that that is all bullshit, you know, with artificial supply to realize that it just is meaningless is, is, was very depressing. And that's why I'm 
really hardcore on this DRS stuff. Yeah, and and you know, like I I've seen you know to be fair, like I had seen evidence. Like I remember way back in college, I was looking at you know so I was browsing some like old Reddit boards, and I was hearing you know about stocks. And I was hearing rumors about small companies getting shorted and you know more shares trading than the float. But I thought, okay, well. This is a company that's about to go bankrupt. There's kind of a feeding frenzy with hedge funds deciding to short it. And maybe, you know, this just gets out of hand for one company in a short time frame and then it's over and no one really worries about it. I did not realize that there are, you know, entities like Citadel and Virtu who have a bona fide market maker exemption that are and they are allowed to naked short indefinitely. You know, they're allowed to short and then, you know, fail to deliver and then just keep rolling FTDs almost forever um, without ever, you know, truly closing their positions. And they're, so, the, so they're essentially allowed to print money, right? They're, they'll, they're selling shares that don't exist and collecting money for it um, and not ever delivering the underlying. So, um, I mean, the, the risk that this poses to the financial system, for one, is huge, but also just, you know, the, the reputation and creditworthiness of, of our exchanges. Like, I can't believe that, this stuff is not more widely known and discussed, especially in, in high finance circles as a, as a risk, you know, to the, to the industry itself. I think that's really terrific and complete uh, history and answer. And, and thanks so much for that. I wanted to lead in here. I think this, you've actually partially answered, but we had a question from community member, Bellweir boy. He's the one who posts a lot of those flight updates often on Reddit. If people remember the name, but he'd asked us to ask you uh, this quick question that I think is very relevant to what you were just saying. Uh, he said, you know, given the House of Cards and other DD, including yours, that systemic collapse is inevitable, how do they manage to postpone it? And what is to stop them from postponing it indefinitely? And then in context of that, are there any key dominoes or other elements in the future timeline that you can think of to look out for? Uh, that indicate that maybe that um, indefinite postponement may come to a close? Yeah, so so these are hard questions to answer, right? Like the entire – no one really has a true picture of how the entire system works. I think everyone has small pieces, and some people's pieces are more complete than others, but no one has a full understanding of everything. Um, but, you know, after about one year of, of GameStop – trading after the 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 short the mini you know the sneeze right i kind of came to the realization that they would try to extend this as long as possible and you know the way they can do that is you know they can do married puts they can do um they can create synthetic shares via options right they can do swaps similar to how bill huang did total return swaps um to levers fund 8x to short um i don't remember what the stocks were but i believe they were Chinese and American equities, um, you know, there's they have a team of derivatives experts and uh, you know legal consultants and financial analysts who are Ivy League graduates and brilliant people trying to figure out how to delay you know any short squeeze of any meaningful magnitude. And so I'm not surpri- I'm actually not that surprised that they've been able to delay it this long. Um, but I don't think that they'll be able to delay it forever. And the reason why is because even if they they can kick this can you know farther and farther down the road, the the eventual problem that all of these um, entities face is 
a reckoning with reality, right? The the debt and the financial derivatives markets are so large and they need to continually grow that they will eventually subsume and you know destroy, in my opinion, the real economy. And once that happens, everything starts to unwind. You know, treasuries start selling off, gold starts selling off ironically because most people think that it's going to be an all-bid situation if there's a meltdown, and that's not true because you know everyone will be rushing into cash and so almost everything will will fall um and in that event which is what i would call like the final sovereign credit event um you know some people have termed it the popping of the the ultimate bubble right the mega bubble what what the fed and other central banks globally have been able to create over the past you know 30 years but especially especially the last 15 years since the 2008 financial crisis will finally come to an end. And it has to because there is no way to have continual growth um, when debt to GDP is higher um, is, is higher than 120% and especially when, once inflation starts to rip out of control. And so what we see is you know, this monetary system where the dollar is the central linchpin to the entire you know, global trade network and all these other foreign sovereigns have to print their own currency or have to trade with the U.S. to get dollars. And every time the Fed raises rates too high and starts squeezing other nations, they have to follow suit and raise rates or they have to you know, allow their currencies to depreciate. Um, and if the Fed – as the Fed continues to – as just time goes on, like let's say the Fed doesn't do anything right now. Let's say the Fed doesn't raise or cut. Um the debt problem still, you know, continually accumulates. Even if you keep all figures constant, you know, there's five percent interest rates right now, and so credit card debt next year is going to grow, treasury debt next year is going to grow, mortgage debt next year is going to grow. Like every single metric is going to keep growing because that's the nature of how uh, debt-based monetary system works. And once the debt payments become so large, especially for the treasury, um, that they can't sustain it, then they'll have to turn on the money printer full force in order to monetize, you know, all debts. And this is what I call um, the the collapse of the abstraction. So there's this philosopher, Jean Bolliard, who, who created this book um, in the 1980s, depicting, and in this book, I think it's called The Desert of the Real. And in this book, he describes how this, this group of cartographers uh, working for this king um, use magic to create a, a map as big as the kingdom itself. And this map has all the details of the kingdom, right? And people start, and they laid this map over the kingdom and everyone starts living on the map and they start thinking of the map as the base reality, as the core reality, instead of it actually being just the abstraction of, of what is real. And the, the central bankers and finance in general has done this exact same thing. They've created abstractions of abstractions of the real world that keep pyramiding, you know, up into infinity. Right? You have a you know, you have a mortgage, and then you have a mortgage-backed security and a credit default swap, um, and then you have CDOs, and then you have a CDO of a CDO, and then you have credit default swaps on CDOs. Like this, this game continually grows and grows and grows, and as it grows it demands ever more money and credit to be fed into it because any deflationary collapse causes this daisy chain to start to implode onto itself, right? And and th these things happen much faster than most people think. You know, you saw 2008, like in August of that year, um, Paulson came in front of Congress and said, 
I need a bazooka. I need to have authorization um, to buy almost unlimited amounts of debt, and I won't use it. You know, this will be a bazooka, just like going to war with a bazooka will prevent the actual war. If I have a bazooka, the markets will never sell off because they'll know that I've, you know, I, the Treasury, right? Um, I and the the Fed will work together to sustain, you know, any market. Uh, co- crash and will be propping up collateral and and not allow things to fall apart. And even though he got authorization for this bazooka, the market still fell apart and they fell apart much faster than people had thought, right? And so we're running into the situation now where the treasury itself is, you know, hurtling down this road to go further and further into debt. Foreign sovereigns are no longer buying treasury debt on on net. Um, which is huge, right? That that means the entire global community, in terms of all the monetary um, figureheads, the people who control monetary policy in the globe on net, are no longer funding U.S. deficits. It's only the private sector and the banks now. And look, those those are powerful entities for sure, but they don't last forever. And so once they run out of money, and once there's so much treasury issuance that they can't sustain it, the Fed has to step in. And if they don't, you know, we have just a speed run of 2008 V2 because you'll have a treasury that's just selling bonds and no one comes to buy them. And so that that's a huge issue. Um, and, and this is like, I'm not also the, the first person to, to make these claims. You know, there's a lot of, I would say, like, li- you know, high libertarian um, gold bug uh, people who've basically made the same claims that, you know, this will eventually all fall apart and there'll be massive, massive issues, especially in the bond markets, if the treasury defaults and if the order go to, they go to auction, they're not able to sell if no one, if, if it's a no bid environment. And so the question is how long can they kick the can? And I say they can kick the can as long as they can print money and as long as the money they print has actual value. And so once that, that, that system and those factors start falling apart, that's when their system starts falling apart. Right. Because, again, the financial system is an abstraction of the real world. It's that's what it was meant to be. Futures markets were designed to be an abstraction of commodities. Right. To, to allow farmers to hedge commodity prices when they're going out to market or when they're selling just so that they can have future guaranteed returns and not have to worry about price volatility. And same with stocks. Stocks are just an abstraction of a company. You know what the company, here's the real company, here's what it is, and here's an abstraction of it that represents ownership in it. And as soon as these abstractions become more and more numerous and larger than the reality itself, um, those abstractions eventually will have to come to an end. And when they do, you know, the question will be for people, right, do I want to own shares of Apple or do I want to feed my family next week? Like these are the situation. Like this is what's happening right now in Argentina, for example. My 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 parents are are traveling down there to visit some family, and they are like they were completely shocked because the situation in Argentina is much worse than most people know about. It's much more dire. Um, the black market exchange rate for dollars is twice that of the official exchange rate that's listed on you know listed markets. Um, and they don't even want to hold their own currency. They'd rather hold Chilean pesos or Peruvian soles, um, which are not strong currencies either, but that just goes to show the complete lack of faith in their own government. And my parents were talking to one of our family members who lives in Buenos Aires, and he was telling us that he had sold his entire stock, like all of his stock market um, holdings 
and converted them into you know pesos first and then dollars because he said he knew that although the prices on the exchange might rise all they were doing was keeping pace at best with inflation they weren't actually providing any real return and so in real terms their stock market is collapsing just like many other you know stock markets with high inflation and so once that happens um you know the only the only question is what do people want to own? Real assets and real things and real shares? Or do they want to own fake abstractions of things that provide no utility in the real world, right? Because the entire point of owning stock or owning wealth or owning an abstraction is that you can use that some at some point in the future. You know, if, if you give your kid 100 shares of Apple stock um, as, you know, part of your trust when you die, you hope that he can not only keep that and grow it, obviously, but if he needs to, he can sell those shares and use it for his college education. The entire, like, what's the point of all of this if you can't use it for real, real world utility? And so as the abstraction grows and becomes more monstrous, um, you know, it eventually has to consume itself and die. And so that's the broad, broad overview. Um, but it would take a lot more time to get into like more specifics of, of signposts. You heard the man. Own your shares. Direct register. Great stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, before we get to the, the public Q&A, uh, I believe Six Days is just going to give us a quick preview of next week's Twitter space. If you could just bear with us for, for a minute, Peruvian. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I'm going to try to keep this short because I know um, I'd rather listen to uh, Peruvian Bull than myself. And I know you guys are dying to get at these questions. But, you know, we, we are going to have a call um, next week. It's going to be um, Wednesday, I think, at the same time. And we do have a topic. Um, it, it's come up a lot, um, the recurring buys um, for GameStop. Um, you know, it seems like the run up and run down seems to be getting bigger and uh and there's people that are you know saying should i try to make money on this should i try to buy options on it and um it feels like this is kind of coming to a head um probably a lot of you don't know um about 10 months ago i was really big into recurring buys i you know just the the uh, drs numbers that gamestop was providing every three months it was you know three months is kind of a long time but these recurring buys um, were happening every two weeks. And it was really something that I was getting excited about. I was tracking them, um, but I couldn't really figure out when they were happening. It was just, I think there were some holidays happening and I just, you know, it, people would uh, go on um, some of the zubs and say, oh, my, my order went through and, oh, I got this price and, oh, my, my shares settled. So I really kind of dug into it. And um, I believe that I was the guy that figured out when the formula of when these buys had happened. And that was 10 months ago. Um, I think it's in the nest. There's a screenshot of it. But um, in, in hindsight, it's very simple. It's basically like a T plus three um, and uh, except for holidays. So if you um, do a purchase on Monday, if the, mon if the Monday uh, is the first, um, the purchase will go through uh, on Thursday. So um, you know, super simple, gets a little more complicated if you, you know, if, if the first is on a, on a Wednesday or whatever, you know, then it, uh, you know, goes through on Tuesday. And so, um, anyway, so I, I, I was tracking those a lot. Um, uh, um, and uh, you know, one thing about it, I didn't have the knowledge to do it, but when these buys were going through, 
um, what everyone wanted to know is how many shares, how many shares, you know, and I'm looking at these candles and I'm like, ah, 20,000, 40,000. I just, I really, I didn't have the knowledge to figure out how big these buys were. We weren't getting the information. I was kind of looking to team up with somebody, um, it, which it didn't happen, but you know, it, it turned out, I'm like, um, uh, th these buys were happening, um, you know, it seemed to be always at the same time. And over time, it just it started to just become more and more narrowly focused. And I'm just looking at these runups and rundowns. And, um, uh, you know, so um, let me see. Uh, I'm sorry, I got some notes and I'm getting a little uh, off topic here. Um, anyways, um, I wanted to get, you know, back into this and just um, see um, if, you know, if these are increasing, decreasing. Um, one other thing that led me into this was um, the uh, bank statement. Someone kind of tipped me off that, um, you know, you can actually get the transaction number in your bank statement. So if you go into Wells Fargo or Bank of America, um, it, there's also a, a screenshot in there in the nest. You can see how many of these transactions have happened. And uh, it, it turned out that, um, you know, over a year period of time, there were about 100,000 of these transactions happening. And so I'll kind of get into that. I, you know, over time when, when all this other stuff started happening, I didn't update this stuff. So uh, um, next week for Wednesday, I'm going to have updates on how many transactions have happened. Um, you know, I'm going to have uh, kind of go through all this stuff, talk about the um, the OD1 and OD2. Again, all this stuff is in the nest. There's, And, and also I'm going to go through and just um, I'll tell you guys which um, what the dates are for these um, first and 15th buys. So uh, everyone's always asking me or asking other people. Someone asked me the other day. I guess the 15th is a Tuesday, which means this next buy will be happening on uh, August uh, 18th, which is a Friday. Um, so I've got that. Um, let me see what else. Um, so, you know, really what what we're missing here is, uh, you know, which broker dealer are they using? You know, we think it's Merrill. We don't know it's Merrill. You know, who's getting paid? How much money? You know, so I've I've really dug into that which is uh, what most people call a 606 report. You know, so I started getting 606 reports from Fidelity. They provide great ones, by the way. I have a Merrill account. I tried to get one from them. They fought me. Uh, long story short, um, I'm going to, I'll be providing a sample of a 606 report. I also have a letter from ComputerShare uh, telling me um, that they will not provide them. Um, but most importantly, is that um, just like a week ago, I stumbled on how you can actually get this from ComputerShare. So I've already um, gone through that process and I'm gonna reveal to you guys um, how to get uh, the data, which is the broker dealer that ComputerShare is using for these um, uh, direct buys on every transaction. And it, it should also tell how much money was made and um, uh, it should show the time that they happen. So we think we know the time, but it should actually have that in there. So um, so I've got that. Um, the other thing I know, um, you know, people are going to um, have asked me to talk a little bit about the uh, heat lamp um, DD. So um, I'm going to do that and take some questions on that. Um, if, if you're not familiar, I, you know, I've said it uh, over and over. Um, the heat lamp is actually there's two parts to it. So, you know, really the, the most groundbreaking part of the heat lamp um, DD was what uh, makes a, uh, a a share enrolled in the uh, I'm sorry a um, share enrolled in the plan. 
So, you know, we'd always had plan shares. We knew what plan shares were. And then computer shares talking about DSPP. And so we're like, oh, plan shares are DSPP. And then it turns out, no, DSPP means enrolled in the plan. So there, there's that, um, uh, that there's that aspect. And that's called the Punnett Square. Uh, or it, there is a Punnett Square that that breaks that down very easily. And then the other part, you know, is is the the part which you guys are familiar with, which is that uh, volume or some other factor is causing more shares to be held at DTC. So um, I, it, you know, sorry for taking up too much time. Uh, I'll let you get back into it. But if you want to read uh, the heat lamp, um, DD is still at uh, gme.fyi. Uh, so that's www.gme.fyi. I want to thank Zed um, for putting that together. Um, you know, creating the art for that. I gave him, you know, um, full artistic creativity for it. He did an amazing job. And, um, you know, one last thing I just want to say before we turn it over to these questions is that um, uh, everything that I'm going to be updating and um, for next week, you know, when I when I tell you guys how to get this information from Computer Share, when I update these graphs, I'm going to post it all to Lemmy. So, like, you know, I can't stress enough. Um, you guys know. Um, a lot of uh, people on here have been um, permanently banned from certain uh, subreddits. And uh, so, you know, I believe that Lemmy's our forever home. So uh, anyways, that'll be on there. And, uh, you know, with that being said, you know, I'll turn it back over to um, Chad or, um, you know, so that we can start the Q&A. Nice. That'll be a uh, that'll be a fun episode for sure. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, just just so we know, uh, PB or Mr. Bull. What? Uh, how much time do we have uh, with you? Just so, just so that I know. Um, probably another twenty minutes or so. Okay, great. Uh, at least we know. Um, yeah, I guess we'll just kind of open it up to some questions and see if people uh, want to talk about some things. Uh, Chad Mojo, eight, can I just yeah. say one quick thing? Yeah, uh, man. Because we do have limited time, uh, we're gonna um, allow you to speak, but then we're gonna mute you. So you know, just say your one question, and we're gonna go on to one other person. Go ahead, Chad, if you want to um, chat yeah, more. Um, I just, uh, it uh, looks like Apex was uh, was there first, and I love the video game Apex. So um, you're going first. What's up? Hey, what's up? Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, great. Hey, thanks for, for sharing information. I really appreciate the work that all of you are doing. I'm just very curious, and, and only answer if, if it helps the larger conversation. I wonder now. Can anyone hear him? I can't. That sucks. He just he just cut out for me. Yeah, Apex. Um, are you um, on Wi-Fi? That sucks. All right. Um, move on to the next one. Maybe Apex can drop down and come back up later. Yeah, yeah drop, drop down Apex and, and then come back up. Mo for nothing, what's up? M4N, good day. Do you have a question? 
I recommend putting the uh, the mute off. Moving on. Bill Weirboy, what's up? Hello? Hey, hey. Someone turned my mic on? Yeah, I tur- yeah, you're on, buddy. Oh, thanks for thanks for asking my question earlier to Peruvian Bull. Um I don't think I have a lot more to say except uh it's just baffling to know how they continue to kick the can. And um, I'm happy to know that Peruvian bull is just as confused as the rest of us as to what sign to look for that the end is coming. It it really is going to be extremely difficult. Well, I think there's a few things, right? And I kind of already touched on like the first signs. Um, if, if you're talking about like in what are you talking about? In what regard? Like the end is coming for another for the the final squeeze for GameStop? Or are you talking about the the monetary system, like the entire thing? Because I, I'll be clear. Like my my theory is that even if they can delay a squeeze long enough, you know the the turmoil on macro will be so bad that they'll eventually that will be the eventual trigger. That's my theory. And look, I can expect I can expand a little bit more on on signposts. Um, you know, like I touched earlier, we we've already seen a couple big ones, right? Number one being foreign central banks are no longer buying treasuries on net, even though they should be holding treasuries as you know part of their hedge um, and their dollar reserves. Uh, they're not buying them anymore, and so what's been funding us, um, you know, since 2015, 2016 is changes in money market fund. Um, requirements to force a lot of money market funds to hold more government paper changes in um capital structure for banks so banks have to hold you know treasuries are are listed as high high quality liquid assets hqla which means that they have to hold them um as part of their capital ratio um to defend against you know any sort of insolvency and so they've been successful in pushing the banks and swelling the bank's balance sheets full of treasuries and the money market funds full of treasuries in order to, you know, offlay some of the, you know, loss of purchasing that's coming from foreign central banks. And they're still purchasing, obviously, from uh, foreign private institutions, right? Like if you listen to Jeff Snyder, he'll point out this very, you know, this very fact, like, you know, the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, the Norwegians, um, you know, others are still buying treasuries. It, it, you know, it hasn't fully stopped yet, but that's one of the first big signposts. Um, you know, the, the other big signposts I would say actually happen in markets that aren't bonds. You know, you if you see gold rise above $2,000 an ounce, which is a level that they're trying extremely hard to defend because that was the last high during the 2008 financial crisis. During the melt-up after the crisis, you know, as people fled um you know, basically all risk, what they deemed as risk assets and went into gold, um, gold hit a cycle high of like something like 2030, um, post 2008. And it briefly touched 20, 2070 in August, 2021. And then it's fallen back down. Um, and they've been working to suppress the price of gold as, you know, I mean, this has been like, like I touched on earlier, it's been, a, uh, it's been their, their goal since the begin, literally the beginning of our monetary system. 
Um, but that's a key level to watch. And I'd also say Bitcoin rising above its previous highs of, you know, 68, 69K. Because w- what we're essentially looking for is any signs that the Fed is deciding and, and pivoting from their role of quote unquote tightening and, and restrictive monetary policy into full on accommodation and full on monetization of liabilities. Um, and they've been, they have been tapering. They've, they've increased, they did the BTFP for, you know, obvious reasons to show up the banking system after, um, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic went down, but they're still, you know, gradually slowly tapering and, and they've, they've been able to pull this off without any more, except for, you know, there's been one more bank failure, at least I believe like two weeks ago, but it was a smaller bank without any more large, large bank failures so far. Um, and so the next, the, the biggest catalyst that everyone is waiting for in the market is for the Fed to begin QE again. And the Fed has been committed to not do this because again, they, they're caught in a rock between a rock and a hard place. They do not, they want to maintain their quote unquote dual mandate of price stability and employment. And so they are, you know, assumedly, <laughs> I, I say assumedly because the way that unemployment is measured is completely flawed, but let's just say that it's measured well. Um, they're hitting their unemployment targets. They're not hitting their inflation targets of 2%. And so they want to get that back down and their credibility desperately needs um, for that number to go back down to 2%. The issue is, and this is what I've laid out with the debt paradox, is that they, in order to do that, they have to raise rates, which just pushes the treasury itself into a debt spiral. And the more they raise rates to fight inflation, the faster they get the treasury gets pushed into a debt spiral. And if they're going to hold rates here for a year or two, um, we're going to see some nasty, nasty things start to pop up on the sovereign level because over about over 55% of all outstanding U.S. debt has to be refinanced within the next 24 months. And so, you know, that's what, 17 trillion, 16 trillion of debt. Um, that's not good. And we're already hitting record levels of interest expense. The month of June was the highest amount of interest expense ever paid by the Treasury ever, and this year we'll be hitting one trillion for the first time ever. And so, you know, the signpost, the biggest signpost, is waiting for the Fed to restart QE, and that's also my theory on why the markets have reacted so well, um, it, despite you know some deteriorating fundamentals. Right? Like people keep asking how how is the market still slowly grinding up or trading a little sideways and not absolutely falling apart um, when bankruptcies are on the rise, inflation still high, um, you know, there's more and more layoffs and workers being, um, especially in, in trucking, we saw yellow committed uh, bankrupt or had filed for bankruptcy the other week and 30,000 people, drivers and, and shippers lost their jobs, right? Like how are things still going well? And, and my biggest theory is that, you know, for the last four, five, six market crashes, the market's been kind of head faked by the Fed. The Fed has said, okay, the market falls, turn on the money printer, lower rates, the market rebounds, everything goes well. 2008 happens, repeat the same playbook just on a much more large, uh, much larger scale. Okay, 2020, instead of even having a limit, the Fed says we will print as many dollars as needed read, you know, infinite as, as many as it needs to, to fulfill all the, uh, you know, all the collateral daisy chains that are imploding to, to monetize these liabilities and keep them off the balance sheets of institutions that should not have them. Um, 
And then the market rallies. And again, 2020, everyone believed that the market was going to be depressed. Everything was going to zero. And, you know, the like it, we would never recover, right? A new Great Depression was coming. And as soon as the Fed committed to infinite QE, uh, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. Because, again, if you read my posts, the entire you know, rally for the last 15 years and 20 years largely has been an illusion. It's just been the, the Fed creating bank deposits or creating bank reserves and shoving them into the system. And so because the Fed is able to correlate their own balance sheet so well to the S&P 500, every time they do QE, the market is going to rip because they're, you know, the bank reserves they create go into treasuries and from there go into equities and derivatives. And so if, you know, the if the market has seen the last what four or five market crashes the fed has come has come in and printed as much money as needed to get to all-time highs and keep ripping higher why wouldn't they expect it again you know at this point it's like it's like that george bush saying right fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me you know it's like i'm you're an idiot for not holding here because you know inevitably the entire market is is has priced in that the fed is going to restart qe and so all we're doing is w- waiting for that shoe to drop or w- waiting for the fed to pivot again and for qe to begin again in earnest and for rallies or equities to just rally hard um and again i people will view that as bullish obviously like stock traders and and um portfolio managers but i think that that's another signpost that we're nearing the you know the latter stages of the end game when the fed just begin start monetize to start monetizing everything in the system. Hmm. Uh, I I have a question, and uh, since okay. I'm the host, um, you know, sorry guys, uh, you you had mentioned uh, how you know endless amounts of money is going into trying to prevent um, what we all hope to be the end goal is the is a is a large uh, transfer of wealth. Um, do you, do you think, or, you know, through, through experience or things that you've seen yourself, do you think that some of that budget, um, is going towards, uh, going against, uh, the DRS, um, movement? Do you mean like, are the powers that be against DRS? Correct. Do you think, I mean, do you, and do you think that they're, they're putting money into creating some sort of, you know, dissonance and, and drama between, between retail investors? Yeah, that's very likely. I mean, if you had shorted something more, you know, more than you would you were even able to cover, wouldn't you want to do everything possible to get out of it? Um, you know, I, I I don't think they have you know the CIA and the FBI listening in on your phone calls, but I it does. I'm not surprised that they're monitoring and and trying to disrupt retail investors um, from you know purchasing shares and from direct registering stock that's not a surprise so i i would definitely say yes um i think mr mr uh spread you want to talk to yeah hi guys yeah. bb uh, amazing content man i'm watching you for quite some time um and i you've been on point with a lot of things <laughs> you already answered some of the questions that i want to ask however i just want to raise a theory right so prior to the 2008 great financial cra- crash, we had Lehman Brothers falling, we had Lehman's falling, and still S&P 500, I think, rallied around 7% before falling around 60%. And can it be the case that this is similar, but to a bigger extent, because in the last, what, 14 years, QE was like unlimited, like you said, and we just have lag and lag effects, but it, I mean... I don't think that it's possible for the current financial system to sustain 
this level of interest rates. So I think we're just seeing a delay before something bigger pops. And I don't think that Fed will intervene so much in the next one when it's going to pop. So like you said, a lot of people were expecting things to fall off. Like I think people were expecting to things to fall off when Lehman fell, when Ben Stearns fell. So do you think that this is the same thing now with just a little bit more lag because of all the shit thing that like shit, I mean, the cheap money that was gathered in the last 14 years? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a common, a common statement in, in macro to, you know, understand that the, the Fed operates on a lag effect, right? So anything they do will take 12 to 18 months to really hit the economy. And so if we're looking at credit markets or treasury markets um, or even equities, like nothing really starts hitting the tape until 12 months down the road because it takes time for all this stuff to be refinanced and for the the rate hikes to start pushing their way into the broader economy. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that we won't have, you know, a crash and we won't have, um, a fall. And, and you, I think you're right that, you know, the market has a funny way of ignoring everything until it's too late and everything is, you know, like everything seems to come to a head at once. That's why, um, there's the saying, you know, the start, the markets go up on a staircase and down on an elevator. Um, it seems like everyone for some reason comes to the same negative conclusion all at once. And this is the same thing we saw in 2020, right? COVID began in, you know, China starts spreading across the United States. First cases are in Washington and California. People are worried, but for all of February, the markets are trading slightly up and sideways. Like nothing is really happening. And then March happens and a few more cases happen, you know, more and more cases start to proliferate. Um, companies start deciding to shut down. And within, you know, essentially two weeks, the entire market just starts getting slammed. And at, for anyone who was trading during that period, it was absolute chaos. I, I have a friend who's a trader and he was telling me that he has this indicator that is um, like it, it measures stocks. It measures a basket about twenty or thirty stocks. He looks at as as what he thinks are the best, you know, macro indicators for the economy, and how many of them are are below their, um, you know, fifty day moving average. And he said in in a single day, every single one went below their fifty day moving average, and it's the first time he'd ever seen that happen um, in his entire like forty years of trading. And so those kinds of stock events you know, do happen. But my theory is that the reason why this has lasted longer than the other one, the other, you know, market side, you know, rallies and, and, and slow grind higher um, has is because people are expecting and waiting for the next round of QE. Everyone's just, you know, at this point, again, it's like the market's been juked out so many times. They're just ready for, they're like, you know, no fundamentals even matter. This kind of goes back to the idea of the abstraction, right? Like, They've the Fed has created this abstraction with their monetary policy that's so large that everything is upside down, right? The Fed hikes rates and the market rallies. Why? Because now QE is closer. You know, a bank fails and the market rallies. Why? Because now QE is closer. Like there's a bad employment number. Great. Now the Fed can hike more. If QE will be closer. Now the market can rally more. It, it, nothing makes sense. All the traditional financial you know, dogmas that you learn in college or you learn on a trading desk or you learn in finance are all wrong now because the Fed has created this strange like behemoth, this market that doesn't really exist on any fundamental sort of you know, plane of reality. And so you know, even if like 
you know, I was talking to some people and, and they were saying like, even if the, the treasury defaulted, the market would probably, uh, you know, rally, right? Because people are expecting that and people are expecting the Fed to just step in and the treasury to do emergency measures to monetize the debt and to make sure the treasury, the federal government doesn't go bankrupt, right? They know that they'll bend the rules whenever it suits them to keep the system going. And so um, I think that that belief is really what's been holding up the market. And I think you're right. There, we will probably see some eventual um, – the, the negative effects will definitely catch up probably you know, fourth quarter of this year into the first half of next year. But I think that everyone's ready, just waiting, ready and waiting for the next round of QE. Well, Peruvian, uh, your 20 minutes is coming up. Uh, can we try to get Apex in? He got um, disconnected earlier. Yeah, sure. Go for let's, it. Let's, let's finish with Apex for sure. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thanks all, all of you for, for the good work that you're doing. I appreciate it. Peruvian, one quick question. Um, I, have you, are you familiar with that Vanderbilt, the railroad short squeeze? And, and also, I'm sure that you have heard about the, the Volkswagen one. The ones like uh, Porsche got 74.1% and obviously it was spiking up. My question for you, what I wonder, uh, I believe on the DRS book and so forth, and obviously in ownership. Um, do you do you think that perhaps I mean that is uh, is really getting to the seventy percent uh, float locked really is going to change things? Because I, I have no clue in financial stuff, but I, based on what I saw in the other squeezes, I mean reading into history, really when it was hitting the seventy four percent, seventy plus percent, really things were were got really interesting. Thank you. I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because the the structure of the system is very different from when those happened. Um, there's much more bank reserves and much more assets in the system as a whole than there was in 2000. Was it 2008 when the Volkswagen squeeze happened? I think it was 2008 or 2009. Um, but it's no co- like I said, it's no co- coincidence in my opinion that those squeezes happened um, during market downturns, especially during the the fall of value of, of collateral. Like if, if these if these funds are holding large portions of S&P or NASDAQ and NASDAQ and S&P are, are falling, um, that will speed up their, um, you know, their approach to the margin lines where they're forced to cover. And so I think that ironically, a, a market sell-off is one of the other signals that um, the next, you know, the next phase of this, the short squeeze, the, the MOAS is upon us. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's 70%. I mean, that, uh, it's impossible to tell. Like I, in order to be able to do the math on that, you'd have to have the positions of basically every single hedge fund and have their P and L and understand their margin to a deep level and like how much, you know, equity they have and how much collateral they have. And we just don't have that information. And so my guess is it's somewhere North of 70% just because of how much larger and more well capitalized the entire system is. But, you know. I have no idea where it actually lies. And anyone who tells you that they do, I think is lying to you. Unless they have some sort of secret information on like hedge funds that none of us have access to. Well, PB, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It, it meant a lot to everyone in the group and the DRS GME group. Um, maybe we could do this again sometime down the road. Uh, again, thank you so much. Of course. And thank you so much. Uh, appreciate being invited onto the space. Um, I just actually have one question. I mean, why is there two websites for you guys? There's ydrs.org and drsgme.org. What's going uh-huh. on there? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, I'd be happy to field that one. So, of course, DRSGME was the initial site. Um, we all met, site founders and initial contributors met on the GME subreddits. And that was the main focus. That's where we all learned about DRS. But the fact of the matter is that, well, number one, every investor, every long investor uh, needs to learn about the truth about the markets and why they might be self-interested to decide to take stock ownership into their own name. And that's uh, kind of the first idea behind YDRS. We're trying to provide comprehensive resources for uh, individual advocacy and general advocacy for all United States-based securities that you can direct register. The second half of that is that moving to a more generalized uh, resource has allowed us to work more directly with different entities in the advocacy and financial space that having a specific ticker in the efforts name made difficult. For example, earlier this year, some members of the YDRS team, including myself, were able to meet on a video call with Gary Gensler through We the Investors. And collaborations like that would not be possible if we were GME-focused. Got it. That makes sense. Um, yeah, both sites look well-made, but I was, <laughs> I, it looked like you just kind of copy-pasted it, the same site twice. So I was, I was curious for the story behind that. So thank you. Oh, well, I definitely want to shout out. There's a ton of resources on YDRS for general advocacy purposes. I mentioned at the head of this call that we just added a huge document detailing how to submit shareholder proposals for any stock that you own, provided you meet the ownership thresholds. There's also, um, you know, ways to submit SEC comments um, about ongoing proposals or to contact the investor relations department of any security to try to solicit them to include DRS numbers in their SEC filings. Uh, and all of that is powered by a user-generated and contributed database that Bibic mentioned at the opener to this call. So anyone who's interested to help grow that effort, to help more people, not just GME investors, but all investors, learn about the importance of self-directed ownership and becoming the sole title holder of your securities, stop by, please, um, help our efforts, uh, we don't have any kind of monetary donation available, but we absolutely accept your time and your interest. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for putting these resources together. It's huge. Um, this is an important message that needs to get out. So I appreciate everyone's support on this, and I'm definitely uh, a fan. So l let me know how I can help. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. it the feeling is mutual. <laughs> absolutely i got a message saying that the host was having trouble with connection so uh chad mojo might not be able to say goodbye but uh thanks everybody for chiming in and peruvian bowl thank you so much once again and uh hopefully we'll see some of you guys next week of course sounds good thank you again everyone for the invite and have a great day all right you too bye thanks everyone